Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Tatiana Wells, Cleveland Central Promise Neighborhoods Early Learning Navigator. I am honored to introduce today's forum, a conversation on racial divide and infant and maternal mortality. 2019 marks the 400th, and 400th anniversary for the arrival of the first ship containing enslaved Africans in British North America. Since then, systems and institutions in America have provided preferential opportunity to some while simultaneously subjecting people of African ancestry to hardship and disadvantage. This opportunity and balance has subjected African Americans to many injustices. We're gathered here today to discuss how systemic racism has driven health inequities especially for women and children. According to recent government data, black infants in America are now more than twice as likely to die as white infants, a racial disparity that is wider than the one that existed in 1850 when the first infant mortality rates by race were recorded. The rates of maternal mortality are equally grim and across all class and socioeconomic class. Our state, region, city, and county are not immune to these trends. Cuyahoga County has one of the highest infant mortality rates in the country. Despite the development of new efforts and initiatives, we continue to see high rates of medical complications and death of black and Hispanic women and children. For example, earlier this year, Data released by First Year Cleveland showed a troubling increase in infant mortality of black babies due to extreme premature, prematurity. We've assembled a panel of regional leaders to discuss the work being done to develop long-term solutions to infant mortality. Guiding today's conversation is IdeaStream reporter and producer Marlene Harris-Taylor. She joined IdeaStream in 2016 after serving as medical editor of Toledo Blade. Ms. Harris-Taylor previously served as public affairs director for WBGU-TV and as a producer for NPR's Morning Edition show in Washington, D.C. She earned her master's degree in mass communication from Miami University of Ohio and her bachelor's of arts in journalism from The Ohio State University. Ms. Harris-Taylor, I turn the forum over to you to introduce our panel. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much, Tatiana. I should say, go Bucks, right, before I start. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I'm so honored to be asked to do this forum today because you know this issue is so personal to me as an African-American woman. But I'm also a reporter and you know, so many times I've covered these devastating facts about infant mortality and maternal mortality. And you know, each time I gotta tell you, you know, reporters, we're not supposed to get emotional about stories, right? But it breaks my heart every time, you know, I hear these stats about what's going on. I know this issue is important to people in this community, especially to people in this room, but everybody is working so hard to make a difference. Yet the number one question I hear from people when I'm out in the community and interviewing folks is, why? Why are the numbers not coming down, right? This is a crisis, but is it being treated like one, you know, by the larger community? And what role does systematic racism play in this issue? We've got some great folks on this panel to tackle all these questions and more. Let me start by introducing to my left, Kristen Farmer, founding president and CEO of Birthing Beautiful Communities. And next to her is Dr. Arthur James, national maternal and infant health expert and advising consultant for First Year Cleveland. And rounding out the panel is Margaret Mitchell, president and CEO of YWCA of Cleveland. Welcome all of you to the panel today. For this discussion. So I want to start off with that question why. I know we want to get to larger issues, but, but let's just you know set the table with um, infant mortality and why. I think it was uh, you, Kristen, that told me that we are at an all, a four-year high in the mater in infant mortality rates yes, right now. A four-year high, despite all your wonderful efforts, efforts of so many people in this community. So I'm going to pass the torch to you to start off with the why. Well, I think that the consensus, as we already know, is systemic racism. And what that means is racism that has perpetuated through our systems, through many systems, not just health, but within economics and um, all of the institutions that we see across um, our society. But it's also has been rooted uh, in the lack of empowerment for people, uh, particularly in African American community and rise up as I often say that if we were empowered more then racism wouldn't exist at all you know for us to rise up to say you know enough is enough we care for our own we take care of our own you know there are disproportionate measures across um, all systemic uh, institutions including the need for more birth workers of color uh, more black birth workers, African-American birth workers in particular. Um, that's within institutions. You know, uh, Ohio certainly has a low number of midwives of color, black midwives, um, and that women, African-American women and families need to see people who look like them who are also caring um, for them. And so with that lack, there's sort of a cultural barrier uh, that comes along with that. And so that has a lot to do uh, with the why. Okay. Well, Dr. Arthur James, I know you've been studying this issue for years. You're here in Cleveland right now, but you've studied this in, in many other cities. Yes. I'm gonna let you tackle the why as well. Yeah, I think it's very significant that, <clears throat> that you're having this conversation today here at uh, City Club, where you are beginning the conversation with an acknowledgement first off of the 400 year anniversary of slavery, and then talking about the contribution that racism makes to the disparities that we see in birth outcomes. And part of the reason that it's significant is that when you think about infant mortality, almost all the time, <clears throat> we describe infant mortality clearly as a clinical uh, situation. 
So we talk about babies dying from premature birth, from congenital anomalies, for sudden, from sudden unexpected infant deaths. We talk about it strictly from a clinical perspective. We never or rarely make the connection between the social stuff that leads to increased risk for certain populations. And when we take that perspective, when we take into consideration the importance of the social determinants of health, <clears throat> I think where we look at the issues of racial disparities and birth outcomes, especially black-white disparities in birth outcomes, <coughs> it's hard to ignore the significance that history makes. So that in 2019, as Tatiana said to us earlier, we are acknowledging the 400-year anniversary of African-American slavery in this country. 246 years of slavery followed by 99 years of Jim Crow account for 345 of the 400 years that African-Americans have been here since the onset of slavery. Put that in the following context. <clears throat> that 345 years accounts for 86% of the African-American experience since the onset of slavery, 86%. Yet as we compare blacks and whites today, not just in terms of infant mortality, but in maternal mortality, in any domain you care to make the comparison, we never talk about that history. We never talk about the 86% of the time that we provided substantial advantage to those of us who are white while simultaneously exposing those of us of African ancestry to significant and substantial disadvantage. And also appreciate that advantage as well as disadvantage accumulate over time. And so when we come to this point in our history, 400 years since the onset of African slavery in this country, it's time to lift up a different narrative to explain the disparity. I came to Ohio to work on this issue, recruited by this state and Ohio State University in 2011, and when I got here, the dominant explanation for why we have the racial disparities in birth outcomes are group level flaws amongst those of us of color. And that's not true. The Genome Project has said to us we're 99.9% .9 the same. The American Anthropological Association has said to us not only that in terms of genetics that we're almost identical, but that this whole conversation we've had in this country to explain the disparities is based on this myth, this, this errant um, philosophy that some of us are superior to, to others. And if we believe that, then it influences how we direct our programs, policies, and interventions um, to help achieve what we need to be working on, and that's achieving equity. Martha, you've said a lot there, <laughs> a lot to unpack there. But I mean, changing the narrative, that's really powerful. And we're going to come back to that. But I want to give uh, Margaret a chance to, to tackle the why question first. Well, I do think changing the narrative is huge. And you know what uh, Dr. James has just talked about is we're not looking at race, we're looking at racism. And when we take infant and maternal loss, and then the juxtaposition of being in a city with world-class healthcare, where else can we arrive? And we are at a point where that world-class healthcare is standing up and saying, and listening, and doing in a way that they never have before. 
we are at a point, we're on the edge of the cliff and we have got to move. When every time I hear those numbers, something inside me dies. It is, it's an emotional feeling. I don't know if anybody else has that. Mm -hmm. But you literally have a feeling inside you that denies truth. We have suppressed, thanks to oppression, that feeling for far too long. And it is time. It is time to take action, to change the narrative, to start from a level of truth. It is not race. It is racism. And I know how hard that is. I know how difficult that is. But that is the truth. And we, we have amassed the ability to move forward. We really have. You know, I think that looking at, to not look at this as a clinical problem and a problem, a larger societal problem, I think is really hard for many people because to your point, that's where the focus has been for so long, right? So how do we move people from thinking about, uh, it's a deficiency if you will, in black women. Because so often you hear about, well, is it the smoking rate among black women? Is it uh, diabetes? Is it obesity? And I'm sure there are people who are going to be listening to this program and say, well, what about the personal responsibility of the individual? Right? You've all heard that. What do you say to that? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll, I'll get us started. First off, in terms of the first portion of your question about you know hearing about this as it's related to smoking or diabetes or to obesity. Again, those things look to attribute the primary cause for not only infant mortality, but the racial disparity in birth outcomes uh, to clinical stuff and puts the responsibility primarily on the individual. So I want you to think about infant mortality and infant mortality rate a little bit differently. That while it's going to take both clinical and non-clinical interventions for us to get to the point that we want to get to, when we think about infant mortality, especially black infant mortality in this day and age, the way I would like to, for you to think about it is that many of those deaths are the consequence of clinical or non-clinical circumstances. So hear me out. They're the clinical consequence of the conditions in which we live, where we work, where we age. Um, it, and it's the whole significance of paying much more attention to the social determinants. Because we don't live in our doctor's offices or in the hospitals the majority of the time. We live in community. And the quality of life that we create in those communities has significant impact on the quality of life in general for us, on how long we live, and yes, whether or not a baby survives the first year of life. Well, you know, Kristen, you said something really interesting to me. You said that there's a connection between this issue that we're talking about today and the mass incarceration of black men. And people don't, you know, you don't automatically make that connection between women, maternal mortality, infant mortality, and the mass incarceration of black men. How, what is that connection? 
well. Um, black men are incarcerated disproportionately, you know, just like everything that we've already brought up here on this panel today, there's disparities in each one of those, even if we are talking about maternal morbidity. Um, you know, with mass incarceration, I think a lot of times we forget that we, we hyper-focus on the mother and the baby and don't really take into account the role of the men within the family unit. You know, we're not just talking about the mother, we're not just talking about the baby, we're talking about this family, right? And so if black men are incarcerated at a much higher rate, then we have to look at that from the lens that those are fathers, those are brothers, those are uncles, those are cousins. People who would be normally in the community who are there to support that mother is, are taken out of that community, right? And so that then contributes to the high levels of stress that our African-American mothers are put on. Because not only is she playing the role of the mother, but she's also playing the role of the father. In Huff neighborhood, for example, and this is, this is mimicked across our inner cities, a lot of times that close to 80% of the, the households are female head of households, you know. And then that community specifically, we also have high, function, uh, func uh, high uh, functioning illiteracy rates too within those same communities. So, you know, it is, it would be naive of us to look just at the mother, the baby, or these little, you know, things around the maternal morbidity, but it's a whole system, right? Mm -hmm. the, the outcome is the poor birth outcome, mm -hmm. right? Because it's our mo most vulnerable population, but there's all of the other things that contribute to that. So all of the systemic issues that affect the father, that affect the mother, that affect the grandmother, you know, it all boils down to that baby not making it its first year. It's interesting you brought up the female head of household because that's another issue where people often point to black women and say, look, you're, you're, why don't you have a man in the house, right? Why are you having babies? Just stop having babies, right? If you don't have a man in the house, right? Margaret, you know, speak to that issue around, you know, this female, what females are having to deal with on their own. You know, I think we so often point back to the black female and so much blame is laid at her feet. And rarely are we looking at the educational system here in the United States. You know, I know many of you read the Plain Dealer article from the Washington Post regarding Shaker Heights um, schools really a tale of, of, of two cities. And you carry that through, 2016, there was a comprehensive uh, study done, a, a survey done of medical students, I believe at the University of Virginia. They asked the students um, uh, a number of questions that are around race, and one of those questions, what was revealed from the students was that medical students, medical students, believe that um, blacks feel less pain. Now, where does that come from? Did that start at University of Virginia or in medical school? No, no, it didn't. You can walk that back into the education system in the United States and see the system that we are creating and how that becomes walking and talking in our medical centers to our single but supported <laughs> black mothers mm -hmm. who um, may not have a male in their household, but certainly have 
a structure, a family structure, a support structure um, with them to be able to um, successfully raise children. Did you want to weigh in on that, Arthur? Yeah, I want to go back a little bit to, to some of what Kristen talked about <clears throat> in terms of uh, the influence of, of mass incarceration on the black community. We are currently at a point where statistics suggest to us that one out of every three black men will um, encounter the criminal justice system in the United States. <clears throat> it started, mass incarceration was started as a result of this whole uh, war on drugs. That war on drugs was contrived, um, specifically targeting communities of color, even though we know from data that where crack cocaine and other forms of cocaine were in concern that whites were just as likely to use uh, those forms of cocaines than blacks or Latinos were, yet we arrested Latinos two times more often in, than whites and four times more often for black, for black people. So you think about the devastating effect that removing that many black men from the black community has had in general on the black community. And I think emphasizing this point also helps us to appreciate and understand contemporary racism because now we're in the midst of an opioid epidemic where opioids are tremendously much more dangerous than cocaine and crack cocaine everywhere, everywhere, where they kill many, many, many more people. If the primary users are white and instead of taking the same approach we did for crack cocaine where we criminalized uh, our national approach. We have elected to medicalize our approach now that the majority of the users are whites. It goes back to that whole thing that I was talking about, about the advantage that we give to whites, disadvantage to blacks. I'm not saying that I disagree with the medicalized approach to the use of, of opioids. But why wasn't that the appropriate response for when we were dealing with, with cocaine and crack cocaine a few decades ago? It's a very interesting question. So what we're saying, what the, what the panel is advocating is that we move away from just thinking about, just focusing only on clinical interventions to get at the root of the infant mortality and the maternal mortality problem. But how do we begin to change the conversation so that people look at it in a more systemic way, look at racism, look at toxic stress? How do we change that conversation? I'll start with you, Kristen. Yeah, the toxic stress is a, is a, big, a big thing, and we did do some research um, internally in partnership with Kent State University to look at what was happening on the stress level. When uh, I first started this work, one of the things that I used to see repeatedly coming into our office was we would have women who, we used to do a national uh, perceived stress scale. We used to use a national perceived stress scale. And this was self-reporting. And women would say, for example, on a scale of one to 10, how stressed are you? They will report very low numbers, one, two, threes but they would have just revealed to myself and the Birth and Beautiful Communities team that they were in a domestic violence situation. They were homeless, couch surfing, all of these things that we normally would know as being a stressor. You know, so much so that I was intrigued to explore the theory 
that is it possible that African American women are internalizing and normalizing the stress mm -hmm. so much that it has become a part of our being and it's the I can handle it sort of resiliency that we carry within ourselves and so a strong black woman the strong black woman phenomenon <laughs> and so um, I went to um, to we really wanted to explore what that looked like and so really what came out of that was what our theory uh, was was that black women in fact are internalizing the stressors the the stress that we have and we pass it on generationally too to our daughters you know as that comes up and so um, that is a big deal if we're talking about prematurity right which is a leading cause of infant death yes you know and so I think that there there's two things well one thing really in particular that I want to say is that I think that sometimes we forget that a the reason why the state city counties numbers are so high is because of black infant deaths and we don't say that enough we need to be explicit in saying that it's black babies if we removed black babies from this equation Ohio may have the best infant mortality rate in the country. No. So this, the states, the black infant deaths that's driving the numbers, right? And then the other thing too is that this is not a poor blacks problem. You know, I think that the myth is that this is a poor blacks problem. Mm -hmm. This affects a lot of black women who are married, who do have husbands in the household, who are, you know, have a shared partnership. So again, it's the toxic stress that has been internalized. You know, we see women from all social economic backgrounds and a woman of a lower background might have stressors that are related to finances, but a, a black woman who has um, a higher education, who has a six-figure paying job, has stressors that comes from her being the only black person in her department at work. And yes. her having to assist her other family members who have not been brought up on that 228-year wealth gap that Dr. James talked about, mm -hmm. right? And so these things internalize over and over. So what can we do? Yes. You know, I always say that we have to, as African-American people, I am putting the onus on us. We do have to be empowered and stand out and, and have the courage to say, when something is not right, that it's not right. When something is not benefiting us and our black babies, we need to be explicit in saying that and have the courage to speak out because that is what I'm here to save. I'm not here to save anyone's feelings. I'm here to save babies. All right. With that, we're almost at the point that we're about to take uh, questions from the audience. And um, I just want to say that I'm reset here. I'm Marlene Harris-Taylor, reporter-producer at Ideastream. And today at the City Club, we're listening to a forum on the racial divide in infant and maternal mortality featuring Kristen Farmer, founding president and CEO of Birthing Beautiful Communities, Dr. Arthur James, national maternal and infant health expert and advising consultant for First Year Cleveland, and Margaret Mitchell, president and CEO of YWCA of Cleveland. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club. Holding the microphones today, our Office and Customer Service Coordinator, Tiffany France, over there to the left, and also Outreach Manager, Julia Wong, over here. So if, if you have a question, let us know. We'll, we're ready for the first question. I see several hands. 
a lot of people want to get uh, in on this. Good afternoon. Uh, this is such an important topic, and I'm glad you're here. Um, my name is Merle Johnson. I'm on the Ohio Board of Education, and the toxic stress certainly affects our students in school, so I'm glad that was mentioned. Um, there have been campaigns and ads and so forth talking about how bad uh, you know, drugs are when you're pregnant, how bad alcohol is, but I haven't seen anything that talks about the importance of attachment and, and the baby being able to bond with the mom or a caregiver uh, when that baby is small and how that actually affects the brain. So, you know, when you talk about solutions, I just think it would be wonderful to have a campaign on TV uh, that talks because so often parents don't understand how just nurturing and cuddling and cooing um, can really, really change um, how a baby grows up and builds resilience. So, Mike, how, how would you feel about something like that? Do you think that would make sense to have a campaign like that? I certainly do. I'm team doula all the way. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I would say that that is something that, that doulas advocate you know, for. But that bonding experience has a lot to do with breastfeeding as well, too. And my team and I were just in the office having this conversation yesterday as we had a client in there who had twins, uh, seven-week-old twins. And I was talking to her about the difference between formula feeding and breastfeeding, right? But we have to get a little real too around how do we promote breastfeeding and the bonding aspect with also informing people, telling them to leave their babies alone on the back in a crib away from them, right? So how, what, what is the medium between that? Because I, to I totally agree. There are a lot of, you know, a lot of research that talks about breastfeeding, you know, so how do we, you know, with giving people options, be able to say that breastfeeding does help to promote the bonding that you talked about. Um, but it also has other benefits as well too. Um, so I totally agree and would like to see such a campaign. And Kristen, we should say for folks who don't know that you, you um, operate a wonderful doula program. Oh yes, and there's the team right there, Birth and Beautiful Communities. Um, and our Akron team, we have some. Thank you. And you recently expanded to Akron. To Akron, we now have two locations and our Akron family is here too today. Um, yeah, so we call ourselves perinatal support specialists because we're like super doulas. All right. So <laughs> we're with the parents for up to 80 weeks, okay. very early on in a pregnancy. We actually attend the labor and delivery and we're with them until the baby is a year old. We have an infant survival rate of 99.2% that I'm very proud That's to wonderful. say. Okay. should be proud. I just wanted to add that I think, you know, um, bonding is critically important, but I also think that every child should um, deserve being able to come home to a lead-free house. Mm -hmm. And environmental racism yeah. is also killing our babies, filling our prisons. Um, this is, we're being poisoned. Our children are being poisoned in Cleveland, and, and lead is, is, again, at a crisis level. Mm -hmm. And poor air quality. Poor air quality, yeah. So if I can go back to the original question, I think there is data that would suggest to us, for example, that um, when we initiate skin-to-skin -skin after a baby is born, and as well as when we um, include breastfeeding, that in fact those babies do have a better survival. Um, compared to babies who are not exposed to those things. 
And some of that, <clears throat> I think, occurs as a consequence of some things that we cannot explain. I like to use the example of <clears throat> if a baby is cold and that mother takes that baby and places that baby skin to skin. By mechanisms of communication that we don't understand, that mother's core body temperature will heat up until her baby's temperature is normal. And then the mother's core body temperature normalizes. So that there are some mechanisms of communication that we don't appreciate, that we don't understand, that we don't talk about, that, but that occur um, that assist and help us in terms of the whole bonding issue and doing well. So I, I agree entirely, but I also think there's data uh, to support that. I think we're ready for the next question. Yes, uh, good afternoon. Uh, Dr. James, I heard you say that the social determinants of health as what, well, racism, uh, since 2018, the Ohio Department of Health and the Ohio Medicaid Office have not funded racism dialogues and social determinants of health. And if we can't get together and discuss this in order to move America and make America great, and if white folks are not willing to come to those meetings, those discussion circles, or what have you in communities, how are we going to change things around racism in this country if white folks are not willing to join with us. Because getting together and talking about it among ourselves, should we continue to just do that? Or should we put a hold on that until we can really get some funding and get folks that really need to be at the table there? Summit County has not had funding since 2018. So what's down the track? What's coming up in 2020 and so forth? Are we ever gonna talk about it? Thank you for that very, very important question. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons that we raise up the whole issue of 2019 and this 400 year anniversary is an opportunity for us to lift up the conversation about race and how America has managed race. It also, I think, is one of the significant things about first year Cleveland. It's one of the few national infant mortality reduction organizations that has made a conversation about racism first and foremost. <clears throat> now when we talk about Ohio, the, the conversation actually gets pretty, pretty complicated. First off, back in 2014, we pushed the whole issue of the importance of addressing social determinants of health to the Department of Medicaid, to the Ohio Department of Health, to, at that time, Governor Kasich's administration. Uh, we were essentially told that social determinants was kind of a smoke and mirror sort of thing, that it wasn't real. Not able to convince them to do it, we circumvented them and um, passed Senate Bill, um, I forget the number now, but it was passed in December of 2016 that introduced 32 different um, things to improve infant mortality in the state of Ohio and one of them was to commission an organization to study how social determinants of health influences birth outcomes. Health Policy Institute of Ohio was the organization that did that study. It's over 250 pages. It's available to all of us on, online and they connected those dots and as a consequence of that we're now using that document to try to convince our legislators that in fact 
social determinants is not smoke and mirrors, but that is, it is extremely important if we're going to improve birth outcomes. Where racism is concerned, um, it's a national effort to try to help people understand the connection between how America has managed race and the consequences that it has on, on birth outcomes. Kristen talked earlier about uh, the whole notion of stress. We are not reluctant at all today to tell women who are pregnant that if they're experiencing a significant amount of stress, that that stress can be incorporated under their skin, if you will, get incorporated into their physiology, and it can adversely infect the outcome of the pregnancy for her. But it can also affect, change the physiology of her fetus and place the outcome of the pregnancy for the fetus at increased risk. But here's the other piece that is extremely important. That fetus can pass those physiologic changes on to subsequent generations. So you think about that. Think about this influence of stress that we're very comfortable with talking about today. You think about that within the context of that 400-year history that I talked about, where for 246 years we were subjected to the extreme toxic stress of slavery, followed by another 99 years of Jim Crow. And how that has influenced our physiology and how that change in the physiology has influenced life expectancy for us in general, but birth outcomes in particular for this conversation. So I think your question is extremely important and one that we have to acknowledge and push um, to make sure that it's a prominent part of the conversation we have, not just here in Cuyahoga County, but throughout this nation. Um, hi, thank you for joining us and continuing to have the conversation. Um, but I guess for me, I'm, I'm more of a, an action person. So given the information that we've been provided, given the um, knowledge that we know that it's affecting our black babies, um, you know, sitting on many panels and participating in a number of um, organizations promoting, um, for example, community baby showers and things of that nature as a possible um, solution or effort to uh, make our community more aware. I'm worried that it's not happening and it's not enough. So what do you recommend for persons like Lone Rangers that do these kind of things to take it to the next level? How do we make, we can't, placed hospitals in the community, we, you know, we're limited. So what is the next step or recommendations to making um, these smaller efforts more powerful? That's a great question because so often when people hear this information, they want to respond, you know, you, you may be sad, but you also want to respond by taking some action. And people often don't know where's the right way to go to make a difference. So who wants to take that one? That's, I know it's a toughie. <laughs> well, I was going to say that, I mean, I certainly resonate with what you said. And, um, and that's how I came to found the organization is because I couldn't sit at any more tables. I couldn't do any more panels. I couldn't talk anymore about what needed to happen versus actually doing it and being involved. So 
Um, it depends on where you are within the community and what your skill set is and playing up your gifts so that you can share that with the people within your community to help to empower them in some way. And that's different for everyone, you know, what it is that you can contribute. You know, there's a lot of economic issues, you know, so I'm really big on entrepreneurship opportunities and helping people, putting them to work, you know, so that there is a sense of empowerment so that they have some hope, you know, so, so that they know that they are not worthless beings, you know, and so, you know, by way of that, our work is centered around doing birth work, but there's many other ways. And I totally agree because a lot of it is surfacy versus we know what the root problem is. You know, how do we create, create a platform to where our mothers are not so stressed? How are we taking things off of their plates constantly, right? You know, welcoming packages and things like that for mothers, new mothers. We talked about a number of different things, but it is going to take a community effort and the collectivism um, in order to impact families in a way that we should. It sounds like you're saying she should keep doing what she's doing. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take a lot of little, uh, I shouldn't say little, but many different efforts like that as we try to work on these bigger issues around attacking structural racism. So I'm, I'm going to totally agree with everything that, that Kristen said. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful question. In general, I would suggest that you start where you are and try to influence your, your sphere of influence. So it could be uh, your family, it could be your friends, it could be your community at church. Um, and, and it begins with education, again, with changing this narrative that, in fact, the fault is all ours and not the larger system's um, way of, of treating us. But you are correct, there is a bigger, bigger, bigger conversation that needs to take place. And one of the ways that we're trying to contribute to that larger conversation beginning in this community is that um, this city is hosting um, a summit on November 8th and 9th. Um, to do three things, to acknowledge the 400-year history, to talk about changing the narrative, and to begin to try to kickstart a national conversation about how we get on the other side of racism. Some of the people that we have coming to speak at that summit include Isabel Wilkerson, the author of Warmth of Other Sons, Derek Hamilton, the current executive director of the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity. Stacy Stewart, the first black president and CEO of the March of Dimes. John Powell, prior executive director of the Kerwin Institute, current executive director of the Haas Institute at UC Berkeley. Uh, Dr. Harriet Washington, who is the author of Medical Apartheid and just dropped a new book a couple of months ago on environmental racism. Gail Christopher, who many of you know is a native of Cleveland. Monica McLemore, who is a reproductive rights advocate. Dr. Joya Career Perry, who is the founder of um, the National Birth Equity Collaborative. Jenny Joseph, who many of you know is a midwife and Florida who has this wonderful program. And the list goes on and on and on. Understand that all of those people that I just named are considered national black experts 
it's extremely rare to have that many national black experts convene in one conference and we have them coming here to Cleveland. Um, we'd invite all of you to be a part of what we think will be a pretty substantial conversation for those two days. Can you give those dates again? <clears throat> November 8th and 9th. <clears throat> now how do people connect if they want to be a part of this? I think we have some flyers outside here um, for people who, who <coughs> want to be a part of it. <clears throat> for two days, lunch, a continental breakfast, uh, for 160 bucks to be exposed to an incredible, incredible number of change makers for so what our do, nation. So what do you hope is going to be the outcome after the two days? I, I, I'll speak to the outcome, but I also, um, and the segue, just to respond to the woman's question, the young woman's question, I did want to say that one of the most important things that we can do is, is vote. And when we're voting, we need to hold those that we vote for um, accountable. We need to know who we are voting for and why we are voting for them. We also need to use um, the pen, if you will. We need to use channels um, to report incidents that we uh, deem uh, racist in nature, um, biased in nature. Uh, there are channels to be able to, you know, get that information where it needs to be, where it can affect change. We need to think about how we begin shifting systems of power, and we do that when we have collective voices. And so I would just encourage us to think about how we are going to be involved in systems and help shift that power so we can begin dismantling those structures from the inside out. We've got to be at tables. We have to be at the table so that we can define how those tables are being set. But voting is key. It is key. Our votes matter. We need to show up in important and big ways in November 2019 and November 2020. But again, back to the, the, oh, the yeah. summit uh, in terms of <laughs> what do you hope is the outcome? Because people have, we've heard here today that people are saying, okay, I'm tired of just talking. Yeah. So what's going to be you hope, the hope for outcome? So one of the things that we hope for as an outcome of the uh, 400 Years of Inequity Conference on November 8th and 9th is, is bold. And we are asking, is it time to declare racism a public health crisis? <laughs> If we take a look at education, gun violence, infant loss, maternal loss, lead, the justice system, can we go on and on and on? What connects these things together? And we are seeing a very powerful move happening, a thoughtful move, a powerful move, an important move across the country to take a next step. Is it the only step? It's not, but it's a big step. And it is important for us to recognize this is a crisis. This is a crisis. 
and declaring racism a public health crisis will change the dynamic, it will bring resources, it will shift in a direction, the direction that we need to go. And we want to see, because we have so many folks coming in from all over Ohio to be able to carry this water back with them and begin that thought leadership around what hangs off of this, why and how. But you are seeing this happen. You're seeing it in uh, King County in Washington State. You are seeing it in Madison, Wisconsin, and Milwaukee. Milwaukee, earlier this summer, declared racism a public health crisis. You know, I just wanted to do a check-in and see if there were any more audience questions. I do see hands. I just want to thank uh, the panel um, for some of the great things you guys have said. Um, but I have a real, real great question for you. Um, <laughs> right, I do, because um, I hear you saying about shifting power, and I heard the doc speaking about systemic racism and mass incarceration. And my question to you is, if we're talking about systemic racism, and we're talking about shifting the power and rebuilding our community, then how can that happen when the economics, the finances go to white organizations that control what funding go to black communities? So if you have systemic racism, then you have white organizations that get money and then they choose who the money go to, then how can we shift power? Because I don't believe power is shifted because corporate rations don't shift power, they take power. Right? So what do we do as a community? Like, where do we start, as the woman said? Where do we take actions? We, we can start our own organization. We can be entrepreneurs, sure. They say, hey, you gotta have a permit to do that, right? You have to have a license. Who, 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 who ordains you to become this? You know, you have to come to me. I'm the person who has to say that you are even able to call yourself whatever you wanna call yourself. So what do you do in, that, uh, in this system, systematic? racism because that's what systemic racism is is generational is emotional is inside my dna it's why i am what i am so explain to me doc i know you said some great <laughs> stuff <laughs> on, right and i just have to i have to agree with you that is a great question a great, <laughs> great and powerful great question, question. <laughs> Now, for an, a local example, I was ready to defer to, defer to Kristen, but since, <laughs> since you called me out, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I want to respond to it in a, in a number of different ways. First off, let's appreciate and understand that if the resolution of racism was up to black folks or to people of color, it would have been resolved a long time ago. Right. So that it's not just up to us. We need white folks at the table working hard to address the very issues that, that you've addressed. In the introduction, there was reference made to um, the red line exhibit that's, that's in town. If we look here in the city of Cleveland, those same communities that were redlined back in the 1930s are the places where we see some of the most significant disparities that exist, not just in Cuyahoga County, but unfortunately, that exists nationwide. Um, so that we know that we've created these barriers and we have to work systematically at knocking them down. Um, that's why 
what Margaret mentioned, the declaration of racism as a public health crisis is extremely important because if you start there, then it sits a lot of the agenda that has to be addressed subsequently, including all of the things uh, that you mentioned. Um, so with that, I'm gonna pass to, Mar to, to Kristen to talk about the stuff that she's doing because I think it's a wonderful example of how somebody at a community level decided not to wait until the powers that be empowered her to make the changes that, that she's making in her community. Um, well, my question, I actually had a question too, <laughs> about how, you know, resources are distributed, you know, even if and when uh, racism is declared a uh, public health crisis because there is something uh, called the trickle-down community engagement, you know, effect for those in nonprofit, you know, organizations that know that sometimes, well, not sometimes, but generally how it goes is that the power of bees receive the resources and then get to decide how those resources are used within African-American communities. Um, and not putting the resources directly in the hands of African-Americans. And I always look back to uh, this quote, and I may be paraphrasing that Albert Einstein says, is that the same way of thinking that created a situation cannot be the same that solved it, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have to think differently. And then we also, again, we have to realize that we are our own saviors. We are our own saviors right? We have the power lies within us. And yes, there are systemic things that change, but we coming up on 400 years, right? So do we have 400 more years or are we going to take this in the reins of our own hands, black, white, Hispanic, and different, right? How are we going to work at a community, at a community level? Shouldn't be top down to the grassroots level. It should be grassroots level to the top, right? Because no one is more of an expert on my community than me. So to add to that one, some other, go ahead, I don't want to hold up the <laughs> To put it into historical perspective, directing it specifically at your question. At the end of the Civil War, the United States was the largest slaveholding country in the entire world. You fast forward to today, after this mass incarceration and war on drugs and how much we arrested the descendants of those slaves, it currently makes us um, the country with the highest incarceration rate in the world. So you think about that within the 400 year history, that black folks in the United States are dependent on the same government that enslaved us, that has oppressed us, to now save us. And after 400 years, I think it's easy to conclude that we ain't high on the priority list for this country so that we cannot just wait. And I wanna put that within the context of recent movements that we've had. So for example, as a consequence of concern about the rate at which black people Unarmed black people were have been killed by police. We had a movement that was take a knee. And we had leadership in this country dog out that movement. And as a consequence, that movement died. We haven't heard much about that in the last several months. 
where saving our mothers and our babies are concerned, we cannot stop. We can never stop. Basic to the responsibility of any of us who are adults is to save our children. And we have to stay on that page and we have to do any and everything necessary for that to occur. In this community right here where we live, where black communities are in the shadow of some of the world's destinations for care, black babies die at four times the rate of white babies. And for large communities in the United States, Cleveland is regularly one of the worst for the rate at which our babies die. It's time to change that. And this is the time that we want to use to change the conversation, to change the narrative, to make sure that this community changes the way that we approach this problem so that all of our babies have an equitable opportunity for surviving the first year of life. I think those are great words to end on. Thank you, Kristen Farmer, Dr. Arthur James, and Margaret Mitchell. And now we're going to turn back over to the City Club folks, to Stephanie, to end us out, close us out. Yeah, I'm Stephanie Jansky, Director of Programming here at the City Club. And today we've been listening to a forum on the racial divide in infant and maternal mortality, featuring Kristen Farmer, founding president and CEO of Birthing Beautiful Communities, Dr. Arthur James, a national maternal and infant health expert and advising consultant for First Year Cleveland, and Margaret Mitchell, president and CEO of YWCA of Cleveland. Our moderator is IdeaStream reporter producer Marlene Harris-Taylor. Today's forum is part of our Health Equity Series sponsored by the St. Luke's Foundation and the Sisters of Charity Foundation of Cleveland. Additional support for this forum comes from Aetna. We have representatives from all of our sponsoring organizations with us today, and we appreciate your support of City Club programming. Community partners for today's forum include Birthing Beautiful Communities, First Year Cleveland, and the YWCA of Greater Cleveland. We appreciate your partnership. And we welcome guests at tables hosted by the Center for Families and Children, the City of Akron, Cleveland Clinic, the Metro Health System, Summa Health Systems Equity Center, Third Space Action Lab, and University Hospitals, as well as students from Campus International School. Support for student participation in City Club forums comes from the William M. Weiss Foundation with additional support from donors you'll find in today's program. We're happy to have all of you here. And that brings you to the end of today's forum. Thank you all the panelists and thank you Marlene. And special thanks to the members and friends of the City Club whose financial support makes our work possible. To find out more about upcoming forums and how you can support the City Club, visit us online at cityclub.org. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.